Hello, this is the Vanguard Court Watch podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Right now, Vanguard Court Watch operates in three counties in California, including San Francisco and Sacramento. Our goal is to shine a light on ordinary injustice in the court system. This podcast is hoping to go a step further and shine a spotlight on criminal justice reforms on a national level. In 1974, in the small town of Union City, California, a 13-year-old girl was found floating in a creek. Having no leads, the police at some point focused on a 19-year-old security guard, Marvin Mutt. He would serve 41 years in prison, having been released in 2016. Many believe him to have been innocent. We have on our show Marvin Much. Welcome. Hi. So can you explain what it's like uh, to have been released from prison after you spent 41 years uh, since, what, the age of 19? It's, as you would imagine, be, uh, it's, it's pretty surreal. Um, when I first went to prison, there was this long, uh, protracted period of blindness. When you leave the world and you go into the prison system, it's a very dark place, and uh, it takes you a while to get acclimated to the dark. You're groping around, trying to get your bearings, and uh, eventually you're, you're acclimated to the dark, and you can see uh, and exist in this shadow world without um, stumbling into walls. Uh, but when I got out, I found there was a second period of blindness. When you leave the dark and come back to the light, it's debilitating. It's everything is sensory overload and um, and loud and fast and um, disorienting. Uh, that was the biggest thing for me. There's too many people. Things were happening too fast, and there was too much movement uh, in the periphery uh, always which uh, wasn't the case inside. Everything was very uh, metered and and deliberate in prison. How long do you think it took you to kind of re-acclimate yourself to the outside world? I was fortunate. Uh, uh, Deborah, my now wife, uh, picked me up at the gate and um, uh, was my guide uh, from the very beginning. And so... Um, in that respect, I was luckier than most. Uh, I had somebody and, um, uh, within, I'd say a week or two, uh, I had, I had a pretty good grip on what was going on around me out here. And, um, because you're hyper aware anyway, coming out of prison. And so you take in everything and you analyze it, um, and so I was able to figure things out pretty readily. Uh, the one thing that I had a real big problem with was um, uh, how much things had changed as far as things that I used to remember, how they tasted it. And things didn't taste the same and uh, um, people didn't dress the same and uh, we had cell phones. Uh, I got I went to Best Buy the day I got out and got a cell phone. and. Uh, figured out how to use it within a couple of days, set up a Facebook account, and uh, it was just overwhelming, the, the amount of information that I had access to. And uh, I think it, that actually uh, was a plus. It helped. But just trying to, you know, figure out 
uh, how things are in this new world that I entered back into uh, was a, a big uh, part of my uh, effort in trying to reacclimate. Because uh, I had expectations. I remembered things a certain way, and uh, things were not matching up the way I remembered them. So I want to go back in time, uh, back to 1974, really. And, you know, I think I, I've, I've done a lot of studying on wrongful convictions. Um, what, do you, what do you sense was the reason that you ended up wrongfully convicted? Well, that's a very complicated question because uh, uh, it's a journey, actually. It's, um, it's no one thing. It's, a, it's uh, a bunch of things in aggregate that uh, come together at, uh, at the right time to cause a wrongful conviction or, or even um, turn your life around to a direction that, that you're just a lost person. There's many, many, many lost people. Uh, whose circumstances in life uh, brought them to a point in their past where they wandered off uh, the path they had been on and uh, are now just lost in the woods. Uh, I I always start with uh, uh, my mom. She's a Holocaust survivor. Uh, she uh, was born in Hebron and uh then Palestine, now Israel. Uh, her father came from Romania, met her mother in Hebron, and was married. And uh, she was born, and he took his family to Romania, and the war broke out, and they got stuck there. And eventually, her parents were killed, and um, she hid in a uh, basement of a church. And another family found her. Uh, as a young girl hiding in the basement, uh, they took her in, and within a month, that family was overrun, and they were all put in camps. And she went to a concentration camp and was liberated at the end of the war, and uh, was brought to Yakima, Washington, by missionaries, uh, and placed in an orphanage. And she stayed there until she was 18 years old. And she met my father, um, who was a traveling minister, had a tent show. Uh, healed people. And, uh, uh, they were married for two years. She had an, a daughter, uh, my sister, who's two years younger than me, and then they were divorced, and she uh, left Washington with her two children to California and uh, found herself in California alone with two young children and uh, did her best to try and uh, do what she could for us. Uh, but she had a lot of physical uh, problems that that remained from her internment. They've been lifelong and um, other things. Uh, I ended up in foster care very early on and so did my sister and we would go back and forth from foster care to her house. She'd be in hospitals and then we'd be go to foster homes and, and she'd come out and we'd go back to her home. And um, So I was introduced to foster care fairly early and um, some of the foster homes, well, majority of the foster homes that I've experienced uh, were not good. Uh, they they take people uh, who have no business having care and custody of children. But yet, uh, that that's just the way it is. You know, children and old people 
and prisoners, they have no voice. I mean, uh, nobody listens to children. So um, uh, I would just run off. I was a chronic runaway. And um, uh, that got me picked up uh, dozens of times and put in juvenile hall. And I um, was made a ward of the court uh, very early, maybe six or seven years old. And um, eventually, that led to more placements in boys' homes and children's shelters. And uh, uh, I ended up going to the boys' ranch uh, as a minor out of control of his guardian. Uh, the judge actually said I was incorrigible. Uh, I went back to the juvenile hall unit after that court hearing, and I looked it up in the dictionary, and I couldn't believe it. <laughs> really? I'm incorrigible. There's no hope. And uh, I was just a little kid. But How old were you? For quite a while. Uh, probably 11. Wow. And, uh, uh, but everybody they sent to the boys' ranch uh, uh, there in uh, Morgan Hill is still there. Uh, uh, they were there because they were incorrigible. And uh, I just thought it was an unfortunate word. Even at 11 years old, I knew that wasn't true. That, that can't be true. And so um, uh, once I was in the boys' ranch, uh, uh, I ran out from there a couple of times. I ended up back in juvenile hall, and they put me in a group home called Because of Youth, B-O-Y. It was there in Santa Clara someplace. And um, the superintendent of the uh, boys home uh, was in the habit of allowing the police to come whenever time there was a crime in the neighborhood of any kind they would come to this boys home and pick up the 14 or 15 boys that were there aging uh, raising an age from 7 years old to 17 years old uh, and they'd take us down to the police department and they'd put us in rooms and they'd have people look through the door and see if they recognized anybody and then we'd be sent back to the boys home but every time that happened which with me was maybe a dozen times uh, and by that time I was probably um, 12 or 13 years old uh, and uh, they would they would write in the files of the boys that they had in these rooms they would write on this date uh, Mr. Much was suspected of burglary on this date suspected of Assaults on this date, suspected of crimes against children. On this date, suspected of vandalism. And so, years later, years later, it became uh, uh, a central part of the reason that I was focused on. Because when um, fast forwarding from that uh, through many more placements after that, uh, uh, by the time I was uh, 17 years old. I was getting ready to graduate from high school. I was getting ready to turn 18 as well. I graduated from high school and um, my mother was in the hospital. I uh, got a job as a security guard uh, because my three sisters and I had to eat. And uh, I got a job. Uh, I bought a car from a guy who worked at the security guard company just got it and had been working there maybe two weeks 
but uh, I had two jobs that I went to frequently in the security company. I would work first watch. I'd work uh, the graveyard shift at a Bell Potato Chip factory. Uh, in the morning, I'd go home and take a nap and then get up and go to work uh, at another site. Uh, it, uh, it was a, like a mall parking lot. And we would just make sure that everybody that was parking there was customers of the store and that kind of thing. And, uh, and when I got off that job in late afternoon, I'd drive back, uh, to my neighborhood. I'd stop at the park down the street from our house and I'd go and talk to this girl named, uh, Linda and, you know, see how she's doing. And, uh, it was a regular thing almost every day. And then after that, I would go check on the girls. Uh, and then I drive to Livermore and go see my girlfriend. But, uh, at the potato chip factory in, in, on the graveyard shift, uh, they would fill up these, um, trailers in the early afternoon with snack cakes and potato chips and whatever. And they would back the trailer up to a cyclone fence adjacent to this big field. Uh, and, uh, in the morning, trucks would come and hook up the trailers and take them where they're going. So at night, uh, myself and another security guard were, um, maybe two or three times, uh, uh, went and got into the back of the truck. And the way you did that was you'd have to jump over a cyclone fence and go through the field, which had vegetation maybe chest high. Uh, it was like a swamp in there. The sun never hit the ground. There was always fog. And, um, so it was like a marsh in there. So going across the field, you would get your shoes muddy and you would get your clothes wet, uh, especially in the middle of the night like that. But you'd go across the field, you'd climb over the other fence, and you'd get between the fence and the truck, and you'd open the trailer, and you'd throw a couple boxes of stuff over the fence into the field, close the trailer, and then carry the boxes back across the field again, getting more wet and muddy. And uh so I had this job maybe two weeks and uh we ate a lot of potato chips at home. Uh it wasn't any kind of grand larceny. I'm just, we're talking maybe fifty bucks over the course of two weeks, fifty bucks worth of potato chips probably, you know. But um when I got my the two or three times I did, I my shoes would get muddy. I'd put them on the back porch and I'd put another pair on and my sister would end up cleaning up my boots uh later on. And then I'm going to just put them in a closet when I needed them. And uh, so um, this one uh, afternoon, I had gotten off work at the mall and uh, stopped at the park, and Linda wasn't there. So I went back to my car. On the way back to my car, I saw another girl that knew both of us. I said, hey, have you seen Linda? She said, uh, yeah, she's up at the basketball court. So we walked back over there. She wasn't there, so I left. I was out of my car, eight, ten minutes top. And uh, uh, when I got back to my car, there was a police car behind my car. Uh, she was sitting in the car writing something down. So I got in my car and I drove away. And I looked up in my rearview mirror and she was following me, talking on her radio. And what she had done is called in my car saying that, uh, 536, I'm following a powder blue Lincoln occupied one time. Uh, and 
so I was freaked out. So I just got this car. I did not have a license. I did not have insurance. I did not have registration. I had nothing. And so I just knew they were going to take the car. I just got it. And so um, I looked back in the rearview mirror again, and she's gone. She's not there anymore. It turns out she got called to a robbery. And so the next day or the day after, she took off sick from work. She was off for almost two weeks. When she came back from being off, uh, there was all this hubbub about uh, um, a murder in the park. Turns out that after I had left the park, the girl that I had asked had she seen Linda was found dead the next morning in that park. Uh, there were now, I wasn't the only one at the park. There was maybe 40 other people at that park, but I was seen talking to the victim. I was the last person seen, according to the DA, the last person seen talking to the, the victim alive. So the next morning, she's found dead in the park. And two weeks later, when this police woman comes back to work, she goes, you know, I, I saw a car there. Uh, and she pulled out her paperwork and she, this is a license plate right here. They put a, an article in the newspaper. Anybody knowing an individual that has this type of car, uh, this age, maybe uh, looks like this, uh, maybe a material witness in a case, we need to talk to that person. So my sister sees this and she calls the police. That's my brother. He knows something. He doesn't even know it. So they come to the house with a search warrant. And um, they search the house. And on the back porch is a pair of of um, flat bottom leather boots, Tony Lama boots, and they're muddy. And so they confiscate them. The victim in this case had been uh, drowned in a creek, so whoever did it got wet. And so they thought it was very significant that these muddy boots were back there. Maybe three days later, uh, I get pulled over and pulled out of my car, laid out on the road, and uh, arrested. Uh, they had a warrant out for me for the murder of this young girl. They got to investigating the car. And they found the person that sold the car. And then they found, uh, once my sister called, who the person was that bought it. They, uh, of course, ran a make on the name. And it comes back with this juvenile file that looks like, uh, it's, it's incredible. It's like, this is the guy. This is the guy we're looking for right here. Look at this guy's record. Now, I've only, I was only ever, ever uh, arrested and put in juvenile hall for running away. Anything else that was in my file that was just from the lineups and the other things that the, uh, I had some, some violence in my file. I, I had uh, an, a, one of my foster home placements, the guy was in the habit of, he didn't like something that you did. He would just call you over within arm's reach. And when you got close enough to him, he would knock you out, physically knock you out. He did that to me two or three times. And I picked up a glass ashtray and threw it through the glass door of his gun case. And he picked up the phone and called the juvenile hall. I said, come get this SOB out of my house. And they came and got me and took me to the juvenile hall and put me in another home. So I learned that if I couldn't run, if I couldn't get away, that I would just go off. I'd 
break something or, you know, slam something. Uh, this all contributed to the infamy of my file. And this file uh, is very significant later uh, when, they, when they're trying to make a decision about who they're dealing with and, and what they're dealing with. There's no narrative in these files that say, this is why this happened or this is, this is you know, uh, the reason that it happened. So I don't know if I can blame anybody for that part of it. But um, so there I was, I was arrested and I was uh, given a public defender. I was his first murder case. And I had a veteran district attorney that was, um, he had tried 75 murder cases before a jury and won every single one of them. And, um, and he was good. Uh, years later, when I was going through the process with the uh, Golden Gate University Innocence Project and the uh, USC Post-Conviction Justice Project, um, he was in private practice at that point, had left the district attorney's office uh, years before. And um, he ended up, after seeing uh, uh, all the evidence that they had acquired, uh, he ended up uh, writing to Arnold Schwarzenegger and to the board of parole hearings and telling them that over the years, um, uh, my case was the one he had the most doubts about and that, um, that I should be released. And, um, but he was very good. And he said that in his letters that he wrote is that he was a very talented, uh, um, advocate for the prosecution. And, uh, and it was, uh, he said, he don't. He does not believe that that the evidence that was uh, presented in this circumstantial case would have ended in conviction uh, five out of ten times. Uh, but he was that good. So uh, we there was um, other evidence that the scene as footprint. The person who killed this young girl was in a long and protracted struggle with the victim before killing her and there was footprints that overlaid hers and his uh, were underneath hers so they were struggling back and forth but the person that did this was wearing Converse All-Stars so I didn't really think I, I just thought I'm going to walk out of this, this trial when it's over we just have to go through this and that's just the way it is because those boots had nothing to do with the scene those, foot, there was, those footprints belonged to a whole other person with a different size foot and was wearing tennis shoes. So I don't know what the significance of those muddy boots were that they just had sitting on a table in the courtroom there, but um, it turned out it didn't, it didn't matter that the person that did it was wearing tennis shoes or that those muddy boots were leather boots. It, it just didn't seem to matter. It was a horrible crime and somebody was gonna pay for it. It was 1975 and uh, it was a different time. So, so um my public defender asked me to cut my hair during the trial. This is how sure I was I was going to walk out of there. I didn't cut my hair because I knew that I wasn't guilty. I knew that they were not going to find me guilty, and I didn't want to leave um, the, the the jail without the hair the curls like. <laughs> so I didn't want to cut my hair, and uh, I was convicted, and I was sent to San Quentin. I can tell you, it's like the door shutting on my tomb. It, it was, I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. When I got to prison, uh, I went to the law library right away. I, I 
figured it was the law that put me there. If I could just reverse engineer that, I could I could get out. So I went to the law library, and um, uh, I ended up going to the law library almost every day for 41 years. It was it's just something I became very proficient at. But um, I met uh, in the first few weeks I was there. I met uh, a law clerk who was a member of the prisoners union. I joined that, and um, I was an activist and an organizer for the first two years I was in prison. And uh, when the prisoners union imploded uh, in the Bay Area in 1977, um, there was a lot of fighting in the Bay Area for uh, among the the, the free um, uh, members who were running the organization. They're fighting over union dues and other things and putting guns in each other's mouth. It was crazy. Uh, I took the platform for the prisoners union and created an organization on the inside um, uh, to advocate for prison reform and humane treatment from the inside out. Uh, we asked to have elections and the warden thought that was a ridiculous contention. So we ended up going to court and uh, the court uh, told CDC that they had to allow us to have elections. Uh, we had elections. I was elected the chair of the first committee in the state. And um, eventually we had a a executive committee at every prison in California that met regularly with the wardens and uh, and um, the administrators of the prison. And um, at the height of its population, our organization represented the collective grievances of 174,000 prisoners across the state. And so that's what I did for the next uh, 38 years. I ran that organization. Um, and uh, I, I don't know, I, I like to think that everything happens for a reason, that for whatever reason I was meant to see the inside of that place and watch it evolve and devolve and because I often say when I go out and talk now that the worst thing that California ever did was let me see the inside of that place. They never should have done it because I'm in a position to say and do something about it now. And I really believe that um, in order to fix brokenness, you have to become proximal to it. You can't do it remotely. You have to, you know, you can't do a Star Trek scan on these things. You have to be intimate with the brokenness and, and, and know it. Uh, before you can fix it. And so uh, I'm a firm believer that, you know, if you want to do something about the carceral policies that are driving mass incarceration, if you want to do something about the, um, um, the, the wasted lives and the wasted years of uh, individuals trapped in the undertow of the the Department of Corrections, uh, then you have to you have to work with the people that were directly affected by it. And uh, you want to know about an Oldsmobile? Ask the guy who owns one. And then, so I like to believe that for whatever reason I was supposed to see and to to know uh, the system the way I do, and that's why I do what I do today. Exactly. Uh, what I did inside it's, it's nothing different it's just no bars uh, and that's really not true either those bars that 
still exist on the other side of the wall, they oppress me still because I left a lot of people in there that I love. I love them. And um, I, I don't know how it is that for 41 years it's not okay for me to leave and then one day I'm the chosen one. I'm, I'm the one I get to go. And then when I walked out, uh, I left a lot of people in there that should be out here on this side of the wall as well. Uh, I remember thinking when I walked into prison as a young teen, I remember thinking I felt like that I was naked. I had no no weapons against this thing that was getting ready to swallow up my life. And uh, 41 years later, when I walked out of the prison, I remember feeling exactly the same way. When the gate closed on me again and I was standing on this side of the wall, I remember feeling exactly the same way, like I was naked with no weapons to defend myself from what it was that I was about to face out here. And, uh, and I also felt that everything that I was or had become, as minimal as that was uh, inside of a prison, was all left behind when the gate closed everything that I was was still inside. And so um, uh, for a a couple of days before I left um, prison, I was truly afraid to leave prison. Uh, I don't know. I kept thinking to myself, how sick can you be that you're afraid to leave this place? But um, it took me a while to understand it, uh, and I still don't understand it fully, but uh, I understand the psychology behind all of this. Uh, you, you're alive 18 years in the free world, and then you spend the next 41 in a cage. And uh, I've only been out three years. Uh, and, I, and it's just uh, a stroke of fate that I'm even out here. Uh, in 2000, well, in 1999, um, uh, a woman named Vanessa Sampson was kidnapped out of Pleasanton and taken by van across the country and tortured and raped uh, and left dead in the snowbank in Lake Tahoe. Uh, they eventually arrested a guy uh, and convicted him and his girlfriend uh, who owned the van. She helped him turn it into a torture van and helped him lure uh, young women into this van. And um, they think he may have killed several people. And um, uh, so they arrested him, tried him, put him on death row. And a guy named Carlton Smith was writing a book about this guy called Hunting Evil. And um in the course of researching the book, he found all of this evidence that showed he actually committed the crime that I went to prison for and was doing the time for. Turns out this guy, when he was a young teenager, was the boyfriend of the girl that got killed. She had just broke up with him. And it's just 
my unfortunate luck that I was seen talking to this person hours before her death. But when they tried me, they were like, yeah, when he left the park that day, he left a dead person there. And I was convicted and sent to prison. We now know that um, there was, uh, I left at 536. We have this tape from the police cruiser that was following me. It shows that I left at 536. We have witnesses that um, my public defender wasn't aware of that saw uh, one of our best friends, saw her alive at six o'clock when she was out collecting uh, money for a paper route. She saw this girl that was murdered. She saw her and said hello. Um, at around seven o'clock, this couple named, um, I don't know the woman's name. Uh, anyway, their last name was Huntoon. Had, they were sitting down for dinner and watching TV and they heard this scream that was so disturbing that they thought that somebody may have got hit by a car. So they went out in front of their house. Nobody was in the street. They went back in and finished their dinner. The next morning, the body of this young girl was found 50 feet from their back door uh, in the creek area. They had actually heard the murder, which was at around 7 o'clock. I was in Livermore. I was miles and miles away from the scene. Uh, and so uh, this guy writing this book, he finds all this incredible stuff. And um, so the Post-Conviction Justice Project and the Golden Gate University Innocence Project get involved in my case. And um, uh, in 2006, six years after all this stuff was found, uh, I'm in a very bad appellate district, very conservative judges. We're not getting any legal action. So um, uh, they decide to do this Shawshank Redemption thing. They they petitioned for a full board, and we have a five-and-a-half-hour hearing, and we present all the exculpatory evidence. We show the board everything. And they ordered my release. And... Uh, Two days before I was supposed to go home, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, who was the governor at the time, exercised his discretion as governor to reverse the board, and I stayed another 10 years in prison. And um, in 2016, uh, we did it again. We petitioned for a full board, and um, Professor Heidi Rommel from the Post-Conviction Justice Project at USC uh, presented the case to the board. Uh, who um, uh, made the case to Governor Brown, who released me, pending for the legal action on this side of the wall. Uh, once you're convicted, they can. They, the only thing the governor and the and the board can do is let you out, and then you have to go to court and try and get your your case vacated and all the rest. But um, uh, if it was not for this this guy getting caught, we never would have known um, because there never would have been a book written. We never would have known uh, about all this other stuff. And we never would have known about her boyfriend and what he was to become later in his life. And we were never, we found out, well, also, um, my sister had called the police because she read this article. And, um, when they searched the house and they put a warrant out for me and they arrested me, my sister, who was two years younger than me, felt that 
she was responsible for me getting arrested. So she tried to commit suicide. And they put her in juvenile hall. And they had talked to her when they searched the house and said, has he ever come home wet and muddy? He said, yeah, on more than one occasion. Yeah, he has. Uh, and fairly recently. So that wasn't good enough for them. They wanted her to be very specific that on the day of the murder, I had come home that way. But she couldn't say that because it, it wasn't true. Uh, as a matter of fact, those boots that they found were on that porch maybe four or five days before the murder. They were on my back porch for a week before that murder. And so um, uh, they put her in juvenile hall and they had her in this room, young teenage girl with the light on all the time. There was a camera in there because she was on suicide watch. She had to do all the things that a young uh, woman had to do uh, under the gaze of this camera. And um, they came one night and they said, uh, we think somebody's going to try and harm you, so we're going to put you someplace else. And they took her out of juvenile hall and they brought her to the home of the district attorney's investigator where she'd lived for two and a half months as a foster child uh, in the prosecution team's home uh, and told her that after the trial, she could live there. And, and But while she was there, every single day, they talked to her about, you know, well, are you sure it was that way? Are you sure it wasn't this way? And uh, she believes today that even though she never said anything incriminating against me, uh, she just said what she told them when they searched the house. That, yeah, there was times I came home wet and muddy. She never, um, she never said anything incriminating against me, but just the act of my sister getting on the stand and testifying was impactful to the jury. And so they thought it was very significant as well. And, it, and really, in isolation, you look at what she said and what she was talking about. It was not, it was it, it had nothing to do with the case. It did not implicate me in one way or the other. So um, she says today, if you watch the documentary, um, she says today that she believes that what they did while she was there and, and those conversations they had uh, markedly changed the way she remembered things. Uh, and like I said, it wasn't uh, in the world. I have never had one moment of animosity to my sister. I've never blamed her one way or the other for anything. Uh, I believe that uh, when you have a system that could take um, um, the liberties that they took with this witness uh, and, and a minor witness at that, uh, and the things that they did to, to um, conceal evidence from my public defender when he could try and talk to my sister before the trial uh, during discovery and the rest of that, he kept telling the judge, I need to know where this witness is. They won't tell me. And so the judge was trying to compel them to say where my sister was, and they never did. They never did. And so he, he wasn't able to, until the day of the trial, uh, where she testified, uh, he never was able to question the witness or do anything. So there was a lot of things that they did that today, uh, I'm, I'm not going to say they couldn't do it today because things are happening today. You see it, you turn on the news and you watch what's going on today. You just can't believe it. That's really, this just happened. Uh, you can't believe it. And so uh, I'm not going to say it couldn't happen today. 
and I'm sure it does. Uh, when you know you don't have the the um, the restrictive flair of people watching what you're doing, uh, you tend to to do whatever it takes to get what you want. And this prosecutor said in his letter that they did many things, many things, to pre preserve their case and to win. And thinking back on it later, he felt that justice would be served if I was to be let out. But it took him, it took him almost 40 years to say that. It seems like there was just no direct evidence at all that you did anything here. Nothing. There was nothing. There was no footprints that were attached to me. There was no fingerprints. There was no white witness to the crime. There was no DNA. There was no, this wasn't a DNA case. What they found was that whoever did this was somebody who was personally enraged with the victim uh, and uh, displayed the body after the murder, left it laying out uh, which psychologists say is a form of humiliating the body because that's how upset they were. I didn't know this person, but casually I would see her every day when I went to the park to talk to Linda and, and, and for the other people I would see every day. These are just casual acquaintances I'd say hi to, or, you know, some of them I knew their names, some of them I didn't. So, um, but the fact is, is that you have a marginalized family. Uh, we had nothing. We were eating stolen potato chips. We were poor people. And I just got this job. I hadn't even got my first check yet. And um, what little money I did have, I paid this guy to get this car so I could go back and forth to work. So, um, uh, you know, I often talk about mass incarceration. And um, uh, I'm kind of different in my views in that while mass incarceration has its roots in racism, because of our social and economic biases, marginalized communities around the state are filled with people of color because of those biases. Prejudice places these people of color in these marginalized communities, which happen to be the feeding ground for mass incarceration. But mass incarceration itself is colorblind, it's socioeconomic. This fiscal year, California taxpayers paid $20 billion to run 35 prisons in California, $20 billion. And so uh, if the marginalized communities around California were filled with white people, prison would be filled with white people. The people who run the Department of Corrections do not care what color the person is in that bed. They're going to get $72,000 to $94,000 average, depending on the prison, a year for each body that's in those beds. That's all they care about. So when you have a poor family, when you have a, a young boy, you have somebody who's a, uh, been in and out of the juvenile system, he's now part of that system. This system is self-perpetuating. It eats its young. It creates at one level what it needs at the next. And I was a prime um, target for uh, a system that is voracious with its appetite when it comes to chewing up uh, young people and putting them into the prison system. So I was poor and uh, we had no, our mother was in the hospital. We didn't have anybody there to protect us. And um, 
uh, my juvenile file was was a result of the same type of thing. Uh, because we were, my, my mother was um, not rich. She did what she could for us. She raised us as well as she could um, and went through a couple of unfortunate marriages. The juvenile system uh, prefers those types of families. And once you get into that undertow, you, you can't swim out. You just get drug out to sea. And, and there's nobody around. It's like, you know, I felt like, you know, as a, as a young, young boy, before I was a teenager even, I felt like um, that the adults in the world had betrayed me. You know, I felt like, uh, like they'd taken me up in an airplane to 60,000 feet and they were all jumping out with parachutes telling me, good luck flying the plane. And left me there, and then it crash landed in prison one day. You know, so I'm just um, I don't know. That juvenile file is it's it, there is really no standards. There's no there's no um, oversight of what what goes into those things. They can put anything they want, and later when they're looking at you for um, to figure out what kind of individual you are, and they pull that file up, it's incredible what's in there. It's really incredible, and it and it um, it paved the way for uh, my the next phase of my life, which was to be four decades in a cage inside San Quentin. So before um, we're almost out of time here, but uh, before we go, I I, I want to get a sense for how you survived forty one years. What did forty one years feel like? I mean, obviously. You're, uh, what, 19 when you go in. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that's like your entire I life. Like I was 12. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Um, well, uh, like I said, I, early on I got uh, into the law, and um, I was good at it. I mean, I was able to absorb that very well. And um, uh, I joined the prisoners' union, and uh, I think – I think I got the gift of gab from my father. He was a Baptist minister. He, he just could talk. And uh, uh, so whenever something was wrong, whenever there was something that needed to be fixed, people would come to me and I would take it to the captain or to the administration or do something to try and change uh, that wrong into something that could be tolerable for the men who were suffering it. And uh, so they came to rely on that. and. I started doing legal work and um, we filed uh, some administrative appeals. Later on, uh, years later, uh, we were involved in filing some administrative appeals for um, uh, one guy who was psychologically uh, impaired. He was in prison. He was being tortured with his, with his condition and uh, he was, the place was just making him worse. And so we, he was getting no treatment. He was getting nothing. So we helped file administrative appeals. Same thing with another guy who's he needed medical help and they weren't getting it. People were dying in prison from the lack of medical care and overcrowding. So we filed all these administrative appeals. And once it got to the point where we got it through the um, superior court and uh, on its way, it got taken over by um, lawyers who turned it into a class action. Uh, the prison law office took this and ran with it and 
uh, for years they have represented the the populations inside and uh, they ended up um, uh, getting the state placed into receivership and 62,000 people were released from prison over the course of five and a half years and uh, they went from 174,000 people in prison to 112,000 people just based on petitions that guides inside started filing at the administrative level and then these these brilliant lawyers took this and and represented us on a tax action and 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 won all of these things but it was a a, a true um um synergenic relationship that we had uh with these people on the other side of the wall and um so uh early on in my life as a foster child i became an injustice collector uh as a young person who suffers abuse um you can either turn into an abuser yourself but on the rare occasion there are people who turn into savers you know i became an injustice collector i did not like things that weren't fair and it would propel me straight into the face of whatever was causing that unfairness and um uh i remember uh, my earliest thoughts were how do i fix this it's not fair and for an injustice collector going into prison, I told you it took me a, a, a minute to become acclimated to the darkest of prison, but once I did, I saw that this place was a minefield of broken lives. And they were asking me to, to go on this journey with them, help them fix things. And so uh, I think there was so much to fix and there was so much uh, to do that I never had the chance to sit down and really ruminate on my own injustice because I think as big as that injustice was, it would have crushed me. And so I think that the extreme brokenness of the system is what eventually saved me because there was not a day, not a single day in prison that there was not some injustice that somebody wanted to talk about or, or that we needed to collectively discuss and try and fix. And, uh, for 41 years, that's what I did. And, uh, and so what are you doing place, now? Well, I'm, I'm director of advocacy at the prison reentry network in Oakland. Um, uh, uh, I work with, uh, another friend. Uh, I, I help him and his wife. They have an organization called Bonafide. Um, uh, we pick people up at the gate that have done a long time, 10 decades. We pick them up at the gate. We give them a smartphone. We take them to Target, buy them some clothes, get them out of their parole clothes, take them to breakfast, get them to their parole office. And then we pass them off to somebody who's going to hang with them for the next six months and um, help them. And so uh, it doesn't cost them anything. Uh, we, we try and get the sponsors to, to, um, to get us what we need to pay for these phones and uh, we give them a backpack that's got grooming supplies in it and, and other things uh, that they, they need immediately once they walk out. And um, we let them know it's sort of like the, sort of like the Godfather, you know, uh, uh, today this is a gift on the day of my daughter's wedding, but there'll come a time when we ask you for a favor. And so uh, there's guys all across the state of California that have been helped 
And if we have somebody that we pick up at the gate that's going to be going to Modesto, we know people in Modesto. We call them, hey, we need you to go down to Caltrain and pick this guy up and hang with him for a few months. And they do it because it's the right thing to do. And so, uh, but as director of advocacy, I, I, um, I work with um, uh, Jared Rudolph. He's a public defender. He's our executive director, but he's a public defender in San Francisco, but he's, he runs our organization and uh, uh, we do lobby work. Uh, Jared is responsible for making sure that the guys, when they come out, are able to have a copy of their birth certificate in their hand, which they need after decades of being missing from the world, uh, you can't get anything. You have to prove who you are first. First of all, they want to know who is this guy who's sitting in front of me who has nothing in our computer for the last 41 years. Who is this person, right? And so you have to prove who you are first, that, you're, um, that you are who you're claiming to be, and then you have to justify why you need help. And so uh, we're here to help them do that at Prisoner Reentry Network. And um, we have... Uh, a quite a large group of people networked across the state. We we have um, barbecues and uh, we have seminars and we uh, go out and talk on panels and we try to uh, we we talk at Senate uh, hearings and uh, some of the hearings and uh, just two and a half months ago I just I went to the UN I spoke at the UN 196 member nations. Went from sitting in a cell three and a half years ago to talking at the UN. Uh, it was uh, it was probably the most in awe that I've ever been. I mean, I, I was just in, in awe. Uh, but I do a lot of lobby work, and uh, I have my phone uh, number out there to the guys in the parole. Uh, Forty-two thousand people out here in the, on parole. Uh, they know they can call me if they have anything that, that's really pressing and uh, I help them make legal decisions and uh, find housing and what we do. And, and, and we have some some parents, uh, families, as you already know, uh, the system has, has eaten up uh, more than a share of people that don't belong in prison. It's some innocent people. And their families turn to me and say, hey, you know what's going on, so can you help us? And um, I think you you're personally involved with a uh, a case in Woodland that is just tragic. I I don't even know. Uh, no matter how many things I have to do, I cannot say no, and I just try and make it happen uh, because in most cases these people have nobody else, and so uh, we have each other. It's it's uh, our prison reentry network is like a family. Well, I'm going to cut you off here um, because unfortunately we're out of time. Um, but what an incredible story and a, an incredible uh, life's journey. We are on the path that we're on. And uh, I think the only thing that we can do is keep track of everything that happens, good and bad, and understand that later you're going to be able to look back and go, oh, well, that's why that happened. Just, it, it, it helped me the whole time I was in prison to understand that everything happens for a reason. And I just kept track of it. And sometimes the, the more egregious the harm that was being done, the greater the the insight was later that I would go, oh, well, that was very important for that to happen because now this is happening because of that. And 
it's just incredible to me how everything fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. Well, great. Thank you so much for being on our show. All right. Well, thank you. That was Marvin Much and his incredible story of 41 years um, in San Quentin for a crime he didn't commit. Um, this was an innocent man. He was not exonerated. He finally got out of out of prison because I think uh, the prison officials finally realized, and we didn't even get into it, um, the discussion of uh, how he went through parole board after parole board and got denied because uh here's an innocent person and they want him to admit to his crime. Well, he didn't commit a crime. Um, and, and the other problem that we have is that here's a case with a lack of evidence and there just isn't the evidence to exonerate him. So an incredible story of uh, Marvin much. This has been the Vanguard court watch podcast. I am your host, David Greenwald. Thank you for tuning in.